You are listening to Friends Next Door. Door. Okay. Door. No, no, no. Three, two, one. Door. Door. What's up, everyone? Welcome to another episode of Friends Next Door. This is Quan. It's Dan. It's Mia. It's Thomas. Woo! All right, everybody. Welcome, welcome. We are so excited. I'm going to dive right into it because I'm super excited. We have a guest today. Woo! We have a guest. So our very esteemed guest, I'm going to intro him. So our guest is a Canadian documentary filmmaker. He is most noted as director of the documentary film Eternal Spring, which was selected as Canada's submission for the Academy Award for Best International Film at the 95th Academy Awards. Out in select AMC and theaters worldwide right now. The CEO of Lofty Sky Entertainment and a Donald Britton Award nominee at the 4th Canadian Screen Awards in 2016. Please help us welcome Jason Loftus. Clap, 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 clap. Thanks for having me, guys. Pleasure to be here. Hi, Jason. We're so happy you could be here. I'm so excited. I'm excited we can make this happen. I feel like we also we like will this into existence. We willed it. We really did. <laughs> Great so. intro. I felt it was like a wrestling intro. Like we're about to, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know if Canadians wrestle. Jason, do you guys have the equivalent? Politely. We, we, we say <laughs> thank you and sorry. We say sorry all the way through. <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness. But yes, Mia's right. We really willed this into existence because Mia like messaged me about this film. I hadn't heard about it. Mm. How did you hear about it? You're Mia? welcome. You're, I'm so <laughs> well, glad. A lot of people have heard off. about it now. Yes, a lot of people have yeah. heard about it. Well, I watched an interview between Jason and China Uncensored, which is one of the Wait. YouTube channels. Yes. Shameless plug, our friend's channel. Um, we had him on the podcast. Correct. Um, so I usually watch that channel, and then I watch the documentary, oh, the, the video, uh, the episode where Chris and Jason were talking. And, you know, I, I was like, whoa, what is this movie? And it just looks... I think the in the video, you guys were playing the trailer, right? And so I was like, this is kind of new. Um, it's a new way to present a documentary. So yeah. that's what mm. got my interest in the first place. Yeah. I think, I believe, Jason, it is like the first animated Mandarin-speaking documentary to be nominated, right, for the Oscars. Is that, I think that... Well, it's a, it's the first of each of those for Canada to submit. So Canada has never submitted an animated film or a Mandarin language film or a documentary. So we we didn't know that going into it, but we're the first in all three. So also, I mean, there's a lot of talent in Canada in docs and in animation, and there's a lot of amazing Chinese Canadians who carry with them remarkable stories and who are very talented. So we feel like we're representing, you know, a larger, a much larger community. Yes. That's incredible. That is incredible. Dan's mind Canada's never submitted a film for the Oscars? Really? They've no, no, never they submitted have, they, a Mandarin language film. They've never submitted a documentary and they've never submitted an animated film. So it's, it's quite often yes. like, okay. you know, Denny Villeneuve and Denny Arcand, like these yeah. are, you know, big filmmakers who've come out of Quebec. A lot yeah. of the times it is a French Canadian filmmaker because mm. um, it's essentially the, 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 uh, the, the, the new name for the foreign language film category, right? It's a non-English language film. Um, I didn't expect it because it's so often from Quebec and we have an amazing talent base in Quebec. So I didn't even clear my schedule that day. I was actually uh, <laughs> recording with an actress in our upcoming video game. And I told her, I was like, you know, there's like a one, in, I think there were 16 films or 17 films that they were looking at that day. So I told her there's like a, you know, there's a one in 16 chance that, you know, my life changes and I'm going to be like disappearing in the middle of this recording session. <laughs> and, uh, you know, and it, it happened. happened. So it was kind of crazy. That's yeah, it was wild. a call. It was like two hours into that 
day and it was like an hour past the time they were supposed to call. And so I was like, oh, is this a junk call? Should I take it? I was really into the recording <laughs> session. Imagine. She was doing a great job. Yeah. Yeah. And I was just like, oh, what's this number? And then I, and then it's like connecting to conference and I was like, whoa, what's going on here? Oh, that's wild. And there was a lady, the, the lady who runs Telefilm, which is the, um, the, the government body that, that selects films in Canada. I knew her before. I used to be on the board of Interactive Ontario, which is the you know, sort of trade association that represents the digital media industry. We do a lot of digital media. And she had been the executive director there. So I knew her quite well. And she was all very formal on the phone. Like, is this Jason Loftus? And I was like, whoa. This Your is, full name. This is good. This is good. Yeah. Yeah, that, that's pretty cool. That's that's what I imagine, like, getting a call from, like, the president is like. Yeah. You know, you're, like, random number. And then suddenly, like, you're being connected to the office of the president. Like, whoa. Wow. It could well be. I'll let you know if that ever happens. I don't, yeah. I don't expect a phone call from your president, but oh my God. Well, you're a prime minister in this case. Yeah. We have a prime minister over right. here. Yeah, indeed. yeah. Right. Indeed. I, I'm, you know, I will take a call if he wants to call. Yeah, me. You're like, well, I'll chat. I'll chat. Yeah. Um, Put my number at the in the link below. <laughs> Well, make sure to include your number in, in the description of yeah, this episode. Yeah, yeah you know? in the description. Yeah, um, thanks, if you could. <laughs> but so then me and I went to see it. And then I actually have gone to see it with another friend as well. I'm in Michigan because I'm from Michigan. And a lot of people have gone out to see it. And then we just kind of DM'd the te- your team. <laughs> and we're like, we would love... Totally slid we, into the yeah, DMs. Yeah, we slid into the DMs and we're so grateful to have you on and to talk about, I know we have a couple areas we want to talk, we, we kind of want to jump into, but like one, thank you so much for being here. And then two, I think the, t- the topics that we kind of want to explore are like this, this topic first, the topic of just like resilience. I think people who have seen the film, that'll ring really true. It's really obvious. The resilience, uh, tone in the film but just like Mm. making the film like I would love to hear like how did you start like get in touch with all these people there's a lot of people in the film behind the scenes and like the main characters but wait so two things um sliding into dms actually works we're for us. Like, it's always yeah. been like a meme, you know. And second is like we're, we should go over. We're Canadian, like, so uh, we're really polite. Yes. We answer every so Thomas, DM you're saying message. for the people that haven't seen it, yes. let's do a very quick for those that haven't seen it. Let's do. I think no, yeah. Jason probably should should yes. do a little Jason, ele- elevator pitch, and he could probably do it the best. If yeah. you could intro the documentary film for us, Jason, and then we can go right into. Um, all right, cue the trailer. It's an animated documentary about a TV hijacking in China. So this film focuses on a story. Actually, why don't I just like, I'll give you, I'll answer your other question at the same time. I mean, you asked well, how this all came about. I'll get into it all and, and sort of touch on everything uh, all at once. We were making a Kung Fu video game a few years ago. And uh, it featured a lot of hand-drawn comic book art. And mm-hmm. so I learned about this artist. He was living in New York at the time. His name is Dashom. He's originally from China. And he was drawing for all the big comic franchises like Justice League and Star mm-hmm. Wars. Um, but he'd also worked with Jin Yong, you know, leading kung fu novelist in China. So we thought, it's perfect. He's got the cultural background. He's got amazing artistic talent. And we brought him up when we were working on this video game. And then we learned that he came from the same hometown as my wife and producing partner, Masha Loftus. And that's a city in Northeast China called Changchun. But they had very different experience there. So Dashong had been forced to flee his home. And that's where this whole story comes into play. Mm. He's part of the Falun Gong community, which is a repressed spiritual religious community in China that has been persecuted for over 20 years now. And there was this kind of constant um, 
struggle with the authorities. So the, the government banned Falun Gong, and then to justify the repression that was going on, they unleashed this sort of constant onslaught of this narrative and all the all the media there that Falun Gong is evil and dangerous, and we need to get rid of these people. And that was underpinning this persecution. And so what the people who were part of this community and they were practicing, it's kind of like a you know Chinese meditation system, uh, and it centers on these principles. It has a set of sort of values to it, truthfulness, compassion, and forbearance. And so these people who were like, no, the government narrative about my faith or my practice isn't accurate, and they would continue to practice, and they would hand out leaflets and whatnot and try and you know, counter the narrative that was going out, but they recognized that it was very difficult to to match what was being done because they controlled the authorities, controlled all the channels of communication. And so they would hand out flyers and someone would say, hey, there's Falun Gong, and they would turn them in. And these people would, you know, end up in the labor camps, they would abuse, there was many reports of torture and abuse and even deaths in, in these facilities. So a group of them in this city in Northeast China um, hatched this plan to climb the television poles and to take over the airwaves by basically cutting the wires and tapping in with their sort of home DVD players, or at the time they were primitive DVDs, essentially CD-ROMs with their homemade video to counter the government's narrative and say, no, this is not what we're about, this is what we're about. And it was really a bold and unprecedented action to the extent that in the aftermath of this crazy heist story, they arrested thousands of people in Changchun City. Wow. And our sort of entry point with this artist, Dashong is part of the Falun Gong community, but he's not directly involved in hijacking the television signal. He just caught up in all of this. And so he ends up fleeing his home. He is detained, he is tortured at some point. He does get out of China. Um, and he's carrying with him this story. He's mixed because from one perspective, he's very sympathetic to the efforts to counter the government's narrative about, you know, what he's part of this community, what they have endured. It's, it's important to him, but he's also like, maybe this was a miscalculation. Maybe we poked the bear because the human cost, including what he endured was really, really severe. Mm. So he was interested in exploring this. Now, my wife, she's from the same hometown, but she's, she doesn't practice Falun Gong. She's not part of this community. And she's a, a daughter of a mid-level government official in China. So for her hearing uh, this and hearing, worlds. you know, the torture and abuse that people had gone through, what's that? Opposite worlds. Yeah, totally, yeah. totally. Right. But she's someone who like, she wants to hear a different perspective. She wants, you know, she isn't sort of set in just what she's been told. Um, People advised her when she was growing up that she should leave China because of that, yeah. <laughs> because it's it's yeah. difficult in that in that environment. You know, if you really kind of speak your mind and, and all of that. But you know, she was she was interested in, in hearing and learning other things. And so, you know, for her, hearing what these people had endured under her nose in her own city, I think was really you know eye opening. It really hit her, and she was like, you know, regardless of the Falun Gong concern, this is a story that Chinese people need to hear, like to understand what these people have been enduring under her nose and also, you know, what they've done like this, they could pull off a, like a heist of the state TV airwaves, knowing how dangerous it was. Why were they doing that? Like what, you know, what was it that motivated them? What drove them to do this and what, how did they do it? Right. All of these questions, it was really intriguing. She felt it was a story that Chinese people needed to hear. I had an interest in the subject already when I was in high school, in the 90s, um, I had a fascination with Eastern philosophy and meditation. And I was introduced to Falun Gong before there was a crackdown in China. Mm -hmm. So I had my impressions of the practice and the community. And then a year later, you know, the Chinese authorities said, these people are evil and dangerous, and we need to get rid of them. And I just couldn't reconcile, you know, my own encounters with Falun Gong with what I was hearing from the state narrative. So for me, that planted the seed of you know, a curiosity about how things had happened, how they had come to where they were in China, wanting to understand more. 
and also a sympathy because I saw a group of people who I had one impression of them from my own encounters. And then there was a completely opposite perspective that was being put forward. And I could see how this twisted narrative was also fueling the repression that they were facing. It was it was underpinning and justifying all the human rights abuses that these people, you know, they were coming out, they'd been tortured and stuff. And, you know, and this was all because of this narrative about them. So I was really intrigued by this story. And I mean, from a filmmaking perspective, it has all the elements of a heist story. You know, it's these mm. this eclectic band of underdogs who are not supposed to be doing what they're doing. And they somehow pull off this crazy, unprecedented feat, really. It was yep. like, I don't think there's another example. This is something my wife and I talk about. Like, since the Communist Party took over in 49, like, there hasn't been this kind of, like, interruption in their monopoly and control on information. It was a huge thing. Right. So that, that in itself is interesting. Yeah. And then I guess the other thing that intrigued us was working with this artist, you know, and, and being able to explore through his artwork the story. Um, I did notice the uh, the heist theme for for like a section of the film. I thought that was really cool. <laughs> I like especially like how each character is introduced. There's like the mastermind. Yeah, and, like yeah. I I That's thought like it was a, great. It, it it almost makes it which is why it, when I was watching the documentary, I felt like I was being transported from like real life to a fictional world, and it was just like going back and forth. And then the the introduction of their characters, I think, kind of helped with like. Oh, this is in a way kind of like fictional, but it's actually real, um, which I thought was interesting. Also, the transitions between the all the interviews of the people, and also sometimes you see you hear Tashyong's voice like narrating the the situations in the movie. Um, mm-hmm. Were done very very nicely. Like everything was so seamless. So yeah, I was blown away. Well, you know, animation is something that uh, you know people think sometimes they have notions about animation. They're like, well. You know, it's very subjective, right? Um, and also they feel it's so often used for kids programming or family programming. Mm-hmm. So we have these kind of concepts about animation, but I think for serious subjects like this, it's very powerful because yeah. it allows you the opportunity to create some distance. So, yes, true. you know, when you're getting close yes. to traumatic events, mm-hmm. you don't need to see, in fact, sometimes when you see the actual imagery mm-hmm. of torture and abuse and all these kinds of things, it's too much yeah. mm-hmm. and you shut down. And then it's really hard to actually empathize because it's just traumatizing, right? Mm-hmm. And and this is the nature of some propaganda as well, right? Is that these very graphic imagery to try and just have people accept whatever messages they're given. And we didn't want to fall into that. Mm-hmm. We want people to understand the gravity of what's going on, but people can understand, they can pick up context. And what animation does is it, it affords you the you know the artistic license to be a little bit more you know nuanced and to give a little bit of distance and to just allow people to know what's happening without putting it in their face right so we use a lot of like for those scenes in prisons we'll use silhouettes we'll yeah. we'll, we'll hear a little bit of testimony we'll see that maybe wounds on or you know like bruises on on individual characters without having to tell you exactly what happened and and that way we can fill in some of those pieces and people can go along with the journey and understand what these people went through without themselves being traumatized. But I mean, one of the benefits I felt of like going back and forth with animation and live action was it accomplishes that. And at the same time, reminds you that these people are real. Like yes. animation has been used in documentaries. You know, it's, it's I, I loved Flea last year. I didn't see it until I finished my work on this one because it's kind of a long-term project. But Flea was a beautiful film last year. Uh, also, you know, did really well with the Academy Awards. Um, the There's others before like Waltz with Bashir out of Israel a number of years ago was a real inspiration for me. Even films like Tower um, that showcased the first U.S. mass shooting, it used um, used rotoscoping. So they would basically like shoot in live action and they would like trace the, you know, frame by frame. And it gave this, you know, gave this animated feel to it. It's a different aesthetic, 
but I just thought it was really interesting to see animation used in documentary. I think mm. it, you know, it's, we, we sometimes have that notion, but actually I think it can be very powerful and it can allow you to communicate more sometimes than you can otherwise. But the thing for me is that when I've seen it used, it's always just there. We don't know who created the animation. We don't know what, you know, who the artist is and what their artistic process or their decisions and the subjective sort of aspects of what they're doing is. And so this to me was an opportunity to pull the curtain back, you know, to see an artist, Dashon, you know, his life was turned upside down by this event. He's got mixed feelings, he's got questions, but he wants to understand it. And the way he understands it is through his creative process, through drawing it as he's there with other people. And then, you know, having these things come to life. And, and I felt that sort of demonstrates the power of art because I just feel as a creator, whenever you work on something, you never leave the process. If you've really put your heart into it, you always gain something, you always change in some way. You don't come away from it the same way you started. So the opportunity to showcase that for an audience on screen and see an artist who's got all of these mixed feelings and then just see when he engages with other survivors and then he meets the lone surviving TV hijacker yeah. who is part of this, who actually has an insight on like why they did it, what they went through, all of that. To see that relationship and how he translate that, translates that through his art and, you know, does it gain, does he gain new understanding? Does he gain some type of healing or catharsis through that process and have that depicted on screen? I thought that was just an interesting layer that I hadn't seen done before in documentaries. And that's one of the aspects, you know, from a filmmaking perspective that really excited me about it as well. Yeah. I thought the artist, like the, the animation choice was uh, like amazing. Like in general, I love animation just like in that it really opens you up to what is like, I mean, just opens up what's possible. Right. Uh, I mean, I'm just thinking back to like the original, like Disney animated films versus like the new, you know, you know, mediocre, uh, live action ones. Right. (laughs) There's just like so much that you can't do like in, in terms of like what to make it look real and everything versus in animation. And like, it just opens up to like, um, and especially with like what you, what you guys did with, uh, Dashio, like, like pulling the current back, it was almost like, uh, breaking a fourth wall and yes, to, to some degree, that, yeah. right? Um, like not necessarily speaking to the audience directly, but really in a different yeah. way. In a different, yeah, in a very different way. And I, and one thing is the character development that you're able to do through just the animation, because most of the people who are drawn, like we aren't able to see them today. So right. it's an amazing way to like honor them, and also like you do feel like you're meeting them. It's, it, it, it is incredible. It is incredible. So yeah, you, know, you make me think of, uh, on that, like when we were screening in the Netherlands, this was actually the first time that Dashon had seen the film. We were at a festival Whoa. called movies that matter. It's a, it's a great human rights festival, by the way, for anyone who's in that space and they do What's it in the, the Hague, which is, you know, it's called uh, movies that matter. Mm. It's, it's in the Hague where they have the international criminal court and a lot of, it's really a human rights focused city and the Dutch government gives a lot of support to the festival. It's a great, great human rights fest. And this was the first time that Dashong had seen the film. He'd never asked me to see a cut of it and I hadn't offered it. I just thought if he's not going to ask, I'm going to show him with an audience, right? And let him experience it while people are witnessing the story on screen. And there was a lady behind us who we had not met before. Um, She's from Changchun and she had heard about this film that it was happening. And she was crying almost uncontrollably through the whole film. She was just sitting like a row behind us and over to the right a little bit. And after the screening, we spoke with her and she knew the individuals in the film personally quite well. And so it was for her this feeling of seeing their stories reflected, but it was more than that. She said she felt like she had met them again. And that really hit me because, you know, Dash Army in some cases, he knew some of the people here, but in some cases he didn't know them well. And in some cases he's going by a photo. In some cases he's going just purely based on description because we don't have a photo of the person. 
And it's even with those individuals, people are like, wow, the likeness is just like I remember them. And that's like, wow, because he's got this really, he's got this real ability to bring things to life. And also I think too, he talks a lot about how, you know, he, he draws with all the detail that you see in like the Western comics. He has that ability to draw with great detail, but he takes a lot of his inspiration from Chinese art. And he mm -hmm. talks about how in Chinese art, it isn't so much about all of the, the details. Mm. It's more about the mood or the feeling that you're conveying, right? It's about, there's some kind of underlying vibe to it that yes. he's trying to conjure. And so he's right. with a city and you're trying to recreate a city. It isn't about the, the, you know, the skyline and it isn't about these sort of iconic buildings. It's about the feeling and it's about the people and it's, it's all about that. So he's, he's able to somehow he's just got that. It's not just, you know, the, the accuracy of his pen, there's something right. else there that he has. He's a real unique talent as an artist. So I actually, uh, saw like I, I was used to be a, still am a big comic book fan. So I had no idea that the artist, uh, Dashiong was from, uh, Changchun or that he went through this experience, but I remember picking up like Star Wars comics, J Justice League, and I'm like, oh wow, this is a really, this is like a, a an Asian, I didn't know if he was Asian American or straight up from China, but I'm like, oh, this is a Chinese comic book artist. That is rare in itself. I'm talking about like yeah. 10 years ago. So I'm like, this guy's incredible. Like you're saying, he's got like the manga influences, like a lot of Chinese um, brushwork influences, but still like very detailed, like mainstream comic books mm -hmm. and so when mm -hmm. i didn't know that this film was coming out until this year and it kind of like all of a sudden like as people are finding out i'm finding out and i'm like wait it's it's dash it's that guy that's the <laughs> and then and then the crazy thing is wait and he drew this he, he <laughs> and so i thought i mean that that whole it like really came together so i'm curious like has there been a lot of like Dashiung comic book fans who had no idea who are now learning about his actual experience that they might have. Oh, you're just teeing me up to plug stuff. I'm <laughs> sorry. Um, so, so we, we played, uh, we played, I, I'm, I'm losing track of my calendar here, but I think it was last week and we were on the main stage at London Comic Con. There will be more Comic Cons, I believe, in the UK as well. Oh, cool. And we were playing LA Comic Con as well. So there will be a screening of the film. We'll be in town for for a panel as well, that'll wow. be the 4th of December. I hope I'm not the one breaking that news. I hope it's been announced somewhere, but um, nonetheless. Broken uh, here. Sure we broke news. So uh, we're finding that, like, and actually just earlier this evening, myself and some of the animators on the, you know, some of the other members of the team who worked on the animation stuff, we were doing a talk with an arts-focused school in Los Angeles. We've done talks with art schools in Toronto as well, high schools, universities. We're really finding people are connecting with it um, part because in part because of Dashon's sort of stature in the comic space yep. and being a you know major artist especially from China that's succeeded in the in western comics but also because the film depicts this this process it shows another yes. side of him and we get to see his creative process playing mm -hmm. out on screen the the thing that I think about too with the you know the, the western comics that he's known for it was very interesting for me early on in my interviews with Dashon is to like well you know these are the standard boilerplate questions like how did you get into drawing comics and for him, it wasn't about these superheroes. At first, he didn't even know about them. The first things that he had were these Chinese comics. Uh -huh. And the Chinese comics weren't about, you know, superheroes with capes who were able to fly through walls and stuff like this. These were people who were real historical figures, mm. you know, but they just demonstrated these remarkable values that sort of underpinned Chinese culture, right? So for him, it was, he wanted to be like UFA. He wanted to be this loyal hero who defended the country. And that's what inspired him to get into comics. And then, of course, you oh, develop this craft. And if you're going to be at the top of your game, you end up working for 
DC and Dark Horse and all these big comic, uh, you know, publishers in the West. But beneath it all, he still really resonated most with these stories that he had read in his childhood. And it was really interesting for me as we were working with him and interviewing him through this process to see how he started to describe the individuals in this film. Because, you know, the, I'm not, I don't want to spoil the whole thing, but it's like he goes through an evolution in terms of how he looks at what they did. Mm-hmm. And you start to see that, like, okay, these are these are modern day versions of people who demonstrate these values, right? And it was really interesting to see that reflected through his through his own process and in his own processing and the internalization of what he was seeing. Wow. Two worlds colliding. I mean, it's just insane to think like, cause normally Comic-Con uh, it's like, you know, the newest superhero trailer or whatever comic based show. And then now you've got a comic book artist doing a, you know, being involved in a, a documentary about human rights and his experience. I, I can't even imagine what the audience is going to, you know, I think it's going to resonate incredibly. I can't wait to see that. You know, there is this kind of, there is a, there's already a branch of people who are really into the use of graphic novels for more, like there's a book that I'm getting into called Disaster Drawn and it looks at like Mouse and a number of these Mm. graphic novels that have depicted atrocities. And, you know, it doesn't sound as, you know, (laughs) as snazzy as like, you know, hey, the newest Marvel thing or whatever you normally go for at the Mm Comic-Con. But um, graphic, there there is a community of people who get that this, is very powerful for use for real life issues, right? And yeah. I think mm-hmm. here, it isn't just a lecture about human rights abuses, we're doing something with the art form that I think is a bit unique. And so people are are really interested in it. They're curious, they love people love to see and I love to work on stuff that I haven't yeah. seen before, you know, that's new. Well, the, the visuals are, are just in beyond captivating. And we we're talking earlier before you came on, and Mia was just reiterating, like, it was and you like, immersive immersive it was like <laughs> something you've never seen before yeah i mean yeah. i was definitely one of those people who associate animation with like kids stories you know so this is what i'm hearing from you now is like blowing my mind um and also speaking about the the audience in the netherlands uh showing when I was in the movie here watching, there's also an audience member who uh, <laughs> it's me, it's me. She's talking about me. crying <laughs> uncontrollably. We shared. So I, so I, so I saw it twice. So like, I'm just somebody. I process things emotionally first, mm. and then I process like normal logically, maybe right. whatever logically, analytically after. Because the first time I saw it, it was <laughs> me. It was there. It was maybe like 20 minutes in. So I started really early, but the first scene that I remember just being just very moved by the purity of what mm. they were doing yeah. was, and I don't want to give away, but there's a scene with some balloons and it was just, I could just, I mean, obviously I wasn't there, so I couldn't, I can't imagine, but I could empathize that these people are in such a dark like again the world it feels like could feel like the world is against you Mm. literally you turn the corner and somebody puts a bag over your face Mm. and like kidnaps you Mm. and locks you away and so in that turmoil darkness to have this levity to have Mm. so such Mm. pure creativity and to see the way that it was drawn honestly that it was drawn and it was just such a a pure like light in a in a cave of darkness and it just like little things like that is it's gone i'm gone um, <laughs> so and so because i think there's there's a lot of imagery i think obviously like we would love to hear 
the choices that you decide to make because Mia brought this mm. up too because the name of the film right is Changchun and directly mm -hmm. translated right is the English name of the film, Eternal Spring mm -hmm. which is the but, name of the town he's which from. is the name of the town yeah but there's a lot you act, there's not a lot of spring scenes right yeah in in the film yeah there's actually a lot of like snow, snow scenes yeah, mm -hmm. and, and the other like imagery Three. so yeah. like I would love to hear more about the choices, the colors that you made that make kind of like what Dasha yeah. was describing, the vibe, the feel of that town. Yeah. So I think seasons communicate, especially yeah. when, I mean, it's, it's true when you're shooting anything, but in animation, like the colors and all of this, they communicate moods. Right. And, and so the city goes through different seasons and also we, you know, we see that these people, the, you know, the individuals on screen, they have gone through different situations. There was a time where they practiced their, their beliefs freely and mm -hmm. things were happier and, and more peaceful. And then they've gone through turmoil. But amidst that, there's still some layer of hope. So I liked there's a few layers to that spring element. I mean, it's an interesting name for one. But also, I mean, when you think about a spring as like a Prague spring or an Arab spring, it like conjures this idea of like a movement uh, for freedom, you know, mm. this kind of struggle for freedom. And the fact that it's eternal, it's like it really speaks mm. to this resilience that they have where they're just continuing to no matter what they face. And when you see in the film what they go through and they still have this resilience, it's really, really eye opening and really, you know, moving, I, I find, you know, to, to see what they've done. So I think there's that layer to it. And then there was something else that really struck me because you know, when you come into this, you expect, given the consequences and given the fact that some people don't survive, you'd think that people would just say, oh, this was a miscalculation. You know, maybe we made a mistake here um, and, and maybe this was a bad strategy. But almost to a T, like everyone you speak with feels they believe very much in what they had done mm -hmm. and they would do it again, despite yeah. the cost. And, and that's true even of those who don't survive, who we hear from only through other testimony. It was very important to them. Like they were asking what, you know, they wanted to know that people people saw this, right? And you hear that and you're just like, wow. So what is it then? Like they, it seems like they lost, but they don't feel so. They still feel this was important. Mm -hmm. And that required some kind of like deep thinking for me to really understand, well, what was it? What was their calculation in all this? Like, how did they weigh this? And I think on one from one level, they understood the role that the narrative was playing. Like they understood that there was gonna be serious repercussions for what they did. They, they mm -hmm. saw that. They had been through it already. Many of yeah. them had been tortured brutally in prisons already. So they were doing this knowing what they could face and knowing that they were definitely, you know, raising the stakes with the authorities. So they did it, but they also understood that the entire persecution that everyone was being subjected to was based on this narrative. You know, this idea, this hateful idea, that these people are worthy of whatever treatment, they're a danger to society, all this stuff, we have to get rid of them they knew that that narrative that it was the only thing that people were allowed to hear was what was underpinning all of these abuses. And I really think they looked at the, and I saw this from Dashong, you know, they, they looked at the Chinese people, like the people in Changchun who were not on the, not part of the government and people who, you know, police, not, not part of the Falun Gong community, but just the, you know, the, the bystanders in all of this, they saw them as victims too. Right. And mm -hmm. even the police, you know, Dashong talks about how the yeah. cops changed. Yeah. over the times that he was arrested he's arrested right. three times and they start by hey you know what i'm just kind of doing my job here you know just don't don't upset the communist party they can be really brutal you know just kind of quietly go about your thing they were actually giving advice and the second time they really believed what they were being told you guys are the criminals and we're going to prosecute wow. you right this is like they really internalized it and the propaganda and the messaging had been having that effect and justifying what they were told they needed to do and by the third time they probably recognized that what they were doing was wrong um but when you've gone this far and you've committed these kinds of abuses, 
all that's left is this kind of resentment inside mm -hmm. of them. You know, they're hateful of the victims, they're hateful of everything, right? Mm -hmm. And they're just lashing out. And you see this change. So I think in Dashlam's mind and in many of these survivors' minds, these people were victims. Mm -hmm. The bystanders were certainly victims. You know, they were being fed this narrative, you know, lies and misinformation about these people that was encouraging them to turn in their neighbors to, you know, right. be re-educated. And meanwhile, they're really being tortured and abused, right? So I, I saw that there was this sort of, um, this kind of idea that reaching these people, even if they had to pay a really big price for doing it, was worth something. Because, you know, the Chinese people who witnessed that, and there's, we're talking potentially hundreds of thousands or more in prime time who saw their program, they can never look at the state media campaign the same way. Right. They all, now they've seen an alternate point of view, they can never look at that. That doesn't mean that all these people you know, get the courage to go stand right. up to the Communist Party and you know, fight the government or something the next day, but they might be less willing to turn in their neighbor. They yeah. might be less willing to be part of this campaign in some way, right? And for them, that was a victory, you know, that that was something that couldn't be taken away from them. And so, you know, kind of long story, getting towards the the imagery and getting toward uh, back around to this idea of a spring. There's a flower that's used in Chinese poetry that really resonates with me. And it's Meihua, it's the like the low or sorry, the uh, the plum blossom flower mm -hmm. because it blooms when it's still winter. Right. This uh, this flower blooms and this there could still be snow and sometimes it comes through the snow. And so when it's used poetically, it, it's this idea that in, in the midst of suffering or in the midst of kind of like really trying times, there's some element of hope or hopefulness or something to look forward to. And to me, that's what this whole event was because they had punctured some kind of hole in this, you know, they talk about it at the end of like bursting this balloon. So this, mm. this narrative is not the only narrative anymore. And there's something else. And what does that mean exactly right now? It doesn't mean that their suffering is over quite the opposite. They suffered immensely in the aftermath of this, but it does suggest some hope for the future, you know, and I think it has inspired many other people. It inspired a lot of copycat efforts in the aftermath, some of which were successful in other cities in China, which you don't get into, but it, it also inspired, you know, efforts that we see today where people are trying to like break through the firewall in China mm -hmm. and, and allow people access to information. And it's the spirit still lives on. So I think I understand that I that they did achieve something and there is still a reason to be hopeful. So I'm trying to capture that spirit of theirs, you know, and reflecting that in the in the use of the uh, the plum blossom flower that we see and also in the name of the film. Yeah, I think it's really interesting that um, what they did was essentially like a uh, a red pill moment for probably the first time in like the the history of the you know Chinese Communist Party and like that really like kind of set the tone for like a, like you know the future movements right like if you think of it now like with all the censorship that they laid in with Cisco's help um <laughs> you know like w with with all that with all the censorship in it's like it was really hard to get folks like for folks to really like coordinate or or like communicate any sort of thing together right so yeah. but like now it's just like now it's just like there's all these little holes that are being pricked into mm -hmm. the into the into their filter into their net you know it's it's like and it's just slowly folks are being like red pilled it, like as a reference to the matrix of just to like the matrix, yeah. Yeah, yeah. i don't yeah. know if they're gonna vote republican or not no 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 no, no, no. <laughs> no like, yeah and, and like yeah. understanding yeah, I, I understand yeah. what you meant yeah, 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 yeah understanding yeah. what like the like the party has been about like for my mom per, uh like for her um, like she moved to the U.S. You know, like '88 or something like that, mm -hmm. and for her, you know, she grew up listening to how like how poor and how desolate, uh, like how poor Taiwan was, mm -hmm. and so 
at, at a community college or something, she met some Taiwanese friends and they were like, oh yeah, Taiwan's great. Like, like, like some of us are wealthy. It's just like a normal country. Yeah. It's like, wait, what? You guys you're are not all in like, extreme poverty. Yeah, you're not like dirt poor or something like that. <laughs> so for her, that was her red pill moment mm. of just like, suddenly mm. she didn't, she didn't trust everything the government said. Right. Yeah. Well, my wife went through it. I mean, Masha was taught growing up that um, she didn't know about the Tiananmen Square massacre at all, right? And she was taught to memorize the names of these heroic soldiers who had defended the country against these rebels. I mean, there were reports that they would even take students who had been murdered and throw a military outfit on them and take images and, and then just say, look at this courageous officer who died defending the country. No, I'd never seen the tank man images, none of that. And oh she's, gosh. I mean, she was top in her class at Peking University. She's a smart lady, right? Yeah. So they just didn't know. They didn't know. And, you know, her father, who worked in the government, knew a lot more, but mm. he knew that she was also kind of someone who would speak her mind. So he didn't tell her. Wow. <laughs> he didn't want her to get in trouble. Didn't want her to get in trouble. So, I mean, this is, um, that's the nature of it. And it's, and they, it also, there's, there's more to it, which is really sad, which is why I feel like, you know, I really understand the heart of the individuals on screen. They want to reach the Chinese people. They want to communicate to them because, you know, growing up, Masha would also tell me something else is that, you know, she said we were, we taught, we were taught a Trinity and I was like, Oh, I went to Catholic school. I know about the Trinity, you know? And she's like, no, 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 different <laughs> Trinity. Not the same thing. Not the same thing. She was taught that the communist party and the country and the people are all the same thing. And what that meant was mm. if someone criticizes the CCP, mm. they're criticizing China because there would be no China without right. the CCP. Mm. And if you're, you're Chinese, so that means, you know, that's, they're criticizing you. Right. right. And, and it sounds illogical for people who live outside of, of, of that kind of environment where we're used to criticizing or even hating our leaders. Like, you know, what yeah. are you talking about? But if that's all you're taught growing up, it really, it's, it's so hard to escape, right. you know, yeah. and people will come overseas and, you know, Masha told me the first time she walked out on the streets in Chinatown and someone handed her a flyer saying, this is what's happening to Falun Gong in China. They're being tortured. You know, some of these people handing out flyers have been through that personally, yeah. or they have family yeah. members there. Right. Yep. And she was like personally embarrassed. She had these emotions, right. It right. brought her to mm. tears. And you see that people will tell them like, hey, don't lose face for China. What are you doing? Don't show Westerners like our dirty laundry, right? It's this yeah. kind of knee jerk thing that's built in yep. that actually shields Chinese people when they go abroad from even yeah. wanting to be, expose themselves to these things. It's uncomfortable, yeah. right? It's uncomfortable. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Like when I talk to my relatives in China, um, like, like I, I'm like, I know Beijing's in lockdown. I know the parts yeah. of the country in lockdown. And they're like, oh, yeah, everything's great. <laughs> How are you guys doing? I hear like so and so many yeah. people died and mm. all that from COVID. Yeah. I'm, like, I'm like, no, we're, we're okay. I mean, people died, but no, you guys are starving. They're like, you know. I see that between families, but to like think about that concept and put it in like this country I mean, you, even yeah. like my own yeah. dad, who's like trapped in his apartment for two months, he was like, it's really bad, but it's but. okay. I'm like, <laughs> but what? It's okay. like, we're, we're very fortunate. Yeah. Well, I mean, like, you know, the last thing you want to do is make it worse by saying, I'm not so sure about this communist party. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. At the door, right? They're going to come so, to I the mean, rescue. That's the thing. Yeah. You, you, people are concerned, right? Mm -hmm. But I do notice the shift, right? Because yeah. I felt earlier on, there was this kind of, you know, Falun Gong was demeaned to such an extent in the right. media and people knew that they were going through a harsh persecution so people who just wanted to go about their lives they developed this kind of i don't want to say callousness but it was easier to just like 
okay, Falun Gong has an issue with the government. Like, let's just not get involved in that. Mm -hmm. You know, and as long as we're not involved in that, we can go about our lives and everything will be okay. And, you know, of course, that's also true if you're also not, you know, part of, you know, democracy kind of oriented community, you're advocating for that. It, It also, if you're not, you know, a human rights lawyer representing any victims, or you're also, you're not Tibetan, you know, part of the Tibetan Buddhist community, or you're not a Uyghur, or you're not, you know, you know, advocating for freedoms in Hong Kong, (laughs) any of those things, you know, as long as you're not part of any of those groups, which all of them have been separately demeaned and denounced in the Chinese narrative, then, then you should be okay. But people don't, I'm, I'm sensing a change in that, you know, Mm. uh, there was a girl, we were doing a talk, Dashong and I did a Q and A at an arts focused university that they, the group had gone to see the film. And there was a girl who was from this city and she had just come back a few weeks earlier to school. And, you know, she was from Changchun, the city where the, the film takes place. And she had been poked and prodded. And, you know, there's this constant, like arbitrary, indefinite, you know, lockdown thing. You can send people into quarantine camps and stuff. And it's it's really harsh. And she could feel it like this is repressive. You know, she yeah. was Damn. she felt, you know, a lot of Chinese people have grown accustomed to just tolerating what the government does to them. But she felt this was this was invasive. This was repressive. And so she looked at the film and it wasn't any more like, oh, that's the Falun Gong thing. I got to stay away from it. She was, she was touched. She was saying, she was a bit emotional and she was saying, how did it, where does the strength come from? She wanted to stand up too. She wanted to assert her rights, but she was like, where does this strength come from? And, and I, I really found that shift interesting because, you know, tradition, like typically people were avoiding this and they didn't want to get involved. And now they're like, hold on, maybe it's not this group. Maybe I'm not safe if I just stay outside of this group. Maybe yeah. there's an issue with the regime. And then if that's the case, how have these people been enduring this for 20 years? What is it that inspires this? Where did yeah. they get that? Right. Speaking of uh, resilience in the, that's represented, um, this we heard that this film took a long like much longer than normal to make a documentary almost film. like avatar is that a criticism <laughs> um, <laughs> i think it's like a reality yeah. of filmmaking like a lot of people don't know like well, what it takes well, i'd love to know more about because a lot of my friends are do film and you know things take yeah. a while but i think maybe jason you could talk to talk to us about the process here and what was unusual about it and the type of things that yeah you guys had to i mean for uh, we're we're an independent studio so Mm -hmm. like a project of this scale with all the animation we sought to do and such it was an ambitious project for Mm -hmm. us so like having the resources and all that to do it is not easy we chipped away at this for close to six years we did other things we had to keep other things going at the same time but there was this constant effort and a small but passionate team. Like, if you're gonna watch the, a, an animated film from a major studio like Disney or Pixar, you can see the animation department roll up. You can go grab a coffee, come back, it's still rolling. There's like, <laughs> there's just a sizable department there, right? Yeah. We had four people in the animation That's department, insane. including the animation wow. director, David Sainama. And so, and I mean, on the lighting and rendering, which is sort of your finishing of the look of everything in animation, right. there's one guy who did the entire thing, which oh you God. and Kim, I think it's the first time that that's ever happened. I don't know. Yeah. I don't know if anyone's ever done the lighting and rendering for an entire feature. It's it's not common. So it's it's a small team. And that part of that was just chipping away. And we had this shared vision, you know, that we mm-hmm. wanted to bring this to life. Um, and yeah, we faced bumps along the way. So I mentioned we connected with Dashong around a Kung Fu video game. Um, the game was being published by Tencent, which is a you know huge media company yeah. in China and a major player in the gaming space. And uh, at the time it was the Wii game platform. So they had, they had sort of brought us through the uh, censorship approvals. There's two different ministries of the Chinese government that have a censorship office that need to okay your game. 
And we were clear, we got through all those mm-hmm. things and we were just going up on their store page and we were all over the homepage, like six different places. We were super excited. This is going to be great. And then boop, it disappears. And this is while we're making this film, by the yeah. way. And I was doing one other human rights related project at the same time. Um, and it just disappeared. And when I finally reached my rep at Tencent, uh, she asked me, are you doing something not aligned with the Chinese government direction? Oh. And she told me that the, the, the reps at Tencent, or sorry, the, the Chinese government had visited the reps at Tencent and told oh, them they had to cut ties with my company. They said it was not an issue of the game. The game had been approved. It was an issue of the company. And so that's where that question came from. And then around the same time, my wife's family members who are still in the Chongqing area in, in China start getting contacted by the public security bureau there. And they're harassed. They're told, we know what your family's up to overseas. So they're trying to send a message to us and say, we know who your relatives are, you know, sort of veiled threat, some kind of intimidation. So we face this kind of thing during production. And then, you know, obviously it made me understand, like I know a lot of people avoid the sensitive subjects. They want to be able to travel to China you know, academics, they want to be able to do research there, mm-hmm. media entities, they want to be able to have bureaus there. Um, you know, and then there's the big entertainment companies, they want to release their films there. There's certain things you're told you just can't touch. And I understand like those those financial costs and like the the business ramifications are real. I can't argue that they're not real. Right. But at the same time, it's like I had worked with Dashong in this video game. He'd opened himself up to me with this story. Mm-hmm. And then you have all these other survivors and these people have gone through hell mm-hmm. and they're sharing the stories of people who didn't survive. They went through hell and didn't make it out, but all they wanted to do was to speak up and share their story. And you're faced with all of this. And then, you know, it just doesn't feel right to say, well, this is inconvenient for me because I mean, if everyone has that attitude, these stories never get told for right. one. Mm-hmm. And it's also like, you think about it. We talk about how we really value the freedoms and the rights that we have. If when you're faced with this kind of, pressure or like, you know, carrot and stick scenario with the Chinese authorities, you change your behavior, then do you really have those freedoms? Or have you basically imported the censorship that they're, you know, that they're forcing on the Chinese people there? So I feel like given what these people have gone through, and there's many courageous Chinese people in different communities who are standing up and doing remarkable things. And if they go through all of that, and then, you know, we can't help them tell their story, then I just think we don't really have these values or these freedoms that we that we say we cherish, right? So I thought it was important. And, you know, I, I've been encouraged, like, yeah, there's there's consequences. We lost a Tencent deal. We also lost a mobile deal in China for, the, for our game. But I've been really encouraged by the response because I feel like there's a lot of people who are resonating with the film. A lot of people are saying, yeah, we've avoided this for too long. It's time to it's time that we talk about it. And I think, you know, that's probably a long-term positive. If people can feel more comfortable to talk about these subjects, you know, Falun Gong to be part of the human rights conversation again, to talk about religious freedom more generally in China, and simply to be able to stand up and say, hey, you know, something's not right, I should be able to flag it. You know, I think a lot about that Dr. Li Wenliang, mm. you know, in the early stages of the pandemic, he made news for a little bit because he ended up, you know, he was, he wasn't trying to be a hero. He wasn't trying to like warn the world. He was just using a private WeChat group to tell some of his physician colleagues that, hey, there's some type of pneumonia-like virus that's spreading here. We should be aware of that. Mm. And he was summoned in by the authorities and reprimanded for spreading rumors. Meanwhile, this virus is spreading and spreading and becomes a, a pandemic, right? Who knows if like his individual, you know, listening to him or heeding his advice could could change things. But the whole thing is when you think about the prospect that like, the fact that you can't speak up, the fact that you can't challenge an official right. narrative and that everything is political, nothing is hmm. everything is like uh, everything is used, looked at through this metric of like for the party or against the party. Nothing is the truth doesn't matter anymore. Yeah. No when you have a society like that, what's that? There's no like privacy. He, you were saying like he was saying it to like a private chat. 
private group. Yeah, private chat. But of course, I mean, this is what I experienced with WeChat. Yeah. Because um, it was essentially my wife's WeChat contacts, wow. the business contacts, the family contacts. They were all from WeChat. I believe Tencent was complicit, like handing it over to the authorities. And mm. I don't think anyone's really surprised by that either. Yeah. I mean, we understand. I mean, a lot of Chinese people, WeChat is relied on in the Chinese communities yep. overseas as a sort like a, as a channel of communication. And everyone self-censors on it, I believe, because they know that, you know, if they say something like they, you're not going to say what you really think necessarily about leaders in China, because, you know, well, that could triggers. cause issues for your yeah. family, could make you lose your WeChat account, all of these things. Right. So, yeah. um, yeah, anyway, it's, it's, it, it hits home, but you know, you, you still feel like these stories are important to tell and, and, uh, you know, and I, and I'm encouraged by the response that people are giving us to the film. Yeah. So given the troubles you had during, um, like, uh, stuff you encountered during production, um, did you guys run into any issues while promoting the film, you know, like, or, or any of the, um, like Canada's put the film as their entry for the, uh, the awards, like any sort of issue, like, you know, barriers there? Yeah, it's continued. Um, so, but here's something too. So there's after the day after Canada selected the film for the Oscars, that was August 24th on the August, on August 25th, Dashong was listed as a banned author in China by a, you know, a government department. Uh, it was released out of Wuhan, but I'm sure it's across the country. Similar oh, yeah. his books being removed. He's responsible for like a hundred titles in China. He's published a bunch of his own comics. Like I mentioned, he's, he's illustrated for Jin Yong. He's, you know, he's uh, he's worked with the major Western comic franchises and he's also part of like teaching materials on art that are used in educational institutions. So that's a big blow, I think, for him. Um, he's kind of used to this treatment, but it does impact a lot of people that he's collaborated with. And then the authorities have mm -hmm. been pressuring a, a renewed round of pressuring to his family members. There's family members he just essentially doesn't speak with uh, in order to avoid pressure and problems on them. They can right. just basically say I haven't been in touch with him, which is true. He just has to not communicate with them. Um, and pretty much everyone who has collaborated with him or has wished to collaborate with him has been under some kind of pressure campaign from the authorities. So that's what's going on now. Um, you know, Dashong though knew what he was getting into. This isn't, and this is something that's like, it's really important ethically as a documentary filmmaker, one that you're, when you're dealing with an issue that has a lot of trauma, when you bring, you know, you're going to speak with subjects, you want to make sure that they're they're comfortable telling their story. They're not just willing to sign a release. They're actually, they want to go there. They're ready to do that because I just don't think you can force somebody. I wouldn't be able to do it. Um, so this is one aspect. And the other thing is that you want to make sure that you're not exposing them to any additional harm. Um, but pretty quickly early on communicating with all the people who appear in the film, I recognized that they didn't need me to tell them about the risks. They had, these people yeah, were like, yeah, they knew the risks I'm better like, than you did. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. They don't need me telling them anything. Right. And, and they know, and they're making a very conscious decision in, wow. in one wow. regard. It is look, I've bought, I've been through so much already to tell my story. Wow. I want to tell my story. Wow. The other layer to it is they recognize that oftentimes their, their best and, and perhaps even only recourse was to shine a light on what was happening. Mm. Right. And so that's, yeah. You know, and, and this is something I interviewed a man uh, for another project who was tortured in a in a prison in southern China, and he was he was treated really awfully. And at some point, his conditions improved, and he didn't know immediately why they had changed, why they had improved. But when he was able to get out of China, um, he recognized that his family members had been meeting with government officials. They had gotten his name mentioned in some human rights reports. There were media articles about him, and so the authorities in China were aware that the, the people outside were watching what they were doing. And that makes an impact, right? And wow. it's like, 
that spotlight matters. And so I was taking my cue from these survivors who were coming out. They know a lot more about how to deal with the regime than I do. And wow. so when my family was facing this pressure, and this was in the midst of releasing a sort of related film that came out of this work. It was done in the middle of Eternal Spring. It was called Ask No Questions, and it was released in 2020. And uh, I did. I ended up writing an op-ed about, about the pressures that we were facing and the interference from the Chinese authorities, and I had it published in the Wall Street Journal. And after that, they have stopped harassing my family, at least directly. And I think part of the calculation wow. is, you know, if you're in the West and you're looking at tackling one of these sensitive subjects and they're going to threaten you or intimidate you or maybe entice you and they see, does that change your behavior, right? Because oh. if they get you to change your behavior, then they know they got a lever they can pull and they're like, okay, right. we're just going to do this and we're going to do this and then we're going to get you to control. constantly change your behavior. Right. But if they recognize that like their efforts to silence you end up actually giving you something to shine a light even further right. on their huh. intimidation tactics and the censorship and all of this, then it's kind of working across purposes for them. It's not really achieving what they set out to do. Right. That is definitely not a foolproof plan. I don't say, I don't ever promise a survivor of torture that, hey, if you speak out, it's gonna make everything better. I don't give them any advice. I just, if they're willing to tell their story and not just willing, they want to tell their story, mm -hmm. then I will work with them to help them tell their story. Um, and these people knew what they were getting into and they still, even to this day, despite what they faced, really are behind it. It was really touching in New York. We were screening, It's uh, we're in our fourth week now with Film Forum in New York and Manhattan. Great, great cinema there. So if people are interested mm -hmm. in seeing the film on the big screen, that's a great place if you're in New York. Um, but there's a few survivors there who are, um, you know, subjects in the film. Do we lose? Is it us or is it? Oh, no. oh, there we go. I think we're back. So you were saying, though, at the New York Film Forum, there were some yes. people in New York that seems like they yeah, came. Yeah, there were a number of survivors in New York, people that we had interviewed. Wow. So Little Wei and mm. uh, Wang Jinming, who's the gentleman who was detained yep. together with Big Truck. Yep. Uh, they live in New York, and wow. they were there at both of the Q&As. I think they must have gone to every matinee as well. They were there <laughs> constantly at the cinema. And so wow. you could see you could see how much it meant to them. I think, you know, I was thinking about it. I, I think when you, when you live through a traumatic incident and other people don't, there's an element of post-traumatic stress that's, that sets in there. Like there's some trauma mm -hmm. and probably some survivor's guilt as well. Like mm -hmm. oh why God. did I live and why yeah. did these people not yeah. live? Mm. And so I can sense with these individuals, they wanted to shine a light on what was happening. There's still people suffering. And they mm -hmm. also felt like they're carrying on this story for those who wanted to speak out and weren't able to. Mm -hmm. So those people who don't survive, they're able to still tell their story, share it on screen. And I can see how much it meant to them to see it on screen, but also to see how other, like audiences were reacting really positively, right? Uh -huh. People really resonating. And so then they see that and that you can see how much that means to them. So. Yeah. That touches me because you know they entrust you with their story whenever you have a story it's like it's the filmmaking process is like it's i enjoy what i do but it's also extremely stressful because you feel like when you care about something and someone opens up their life to you mm -hmm. and there's this event and you're just like this is remarkable what they did was remarkable you want to do justice to it mm -hmm. and you just you feel really uneasy until you reach that point and films are like, they're like ugly ducklings. It's not like you have a first pass and you're like, oh yeah, that's amazing. This is gonna win awards. It's it's like, it's ugly until it's not, right? Mm -hmm. You just keep chipping away at it and yeah. iterating. So you feel this duty to these people who've, you know, gone through so much and now you're the one telling their story, right? Yeah. 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 Yeah, I think what you said earlier about um, uh, like shining a light on, on these, on like one, one of the 
CCP start trying to pressure you in any sort of way. It's so interesting that these are basically like bully or like mafia like tactics. Yeah. Yeah. And like all, and it seems like all you have to do is just like, just like shine a light on it. And it's really interesting that like, you know, for folks who are more, you maybe know, mo- maybe harder than that, but, <laughs> but yes, in yeah. theory, in yeah, theory, yeah. Yes. yeah but like, yeah. as you bring attention to it, yeah, right? yeah. And it's yeah. so it's, best, yeah. it's interesting that you know, for folks who are famous or who have some power, that they're so scared of like yeah. any sort of like against this tactic. It's so interesting. Well, I yeah. wonder if it's because they think they just they have so much to lose. Yeah, you know, from sure. there. That's so, what yeah. happens is you get entrenched yeah. in it, and this was a conscious decision. You know, my wife and I, we talked about this and um, I mean, she has more at stake than I do. She's got family members that she can't see, even her mother, you know, she hasn't been able, the family told her like, and she's not involved. She didn't produce anything with us. She's, you know, she made some dinner sometimes, right? Which is, you know, nice Chinese dumplings and stuff, but that's her, (laughs) she, yeah. She's she wasn't directly involved, but the family members in China they told her not to come back for weddings. They felt it was going to be too stressful. They they weren't sure what the authorities were do would do to the to her. So this is a it has a it has ramifications too. Sure. You know this there's there's consequences to it, and I get it. The people who get more entrenched, it's it's the, the stakes are even bigger. They feel like they could lose a lot, right? Mm-hmm. So you know there's that, but. We talked about it and right from the beginning we didn't want to be in a situation where we were you know standing we wanted to be on solid footing we were like mm-hmm. our foundation is like we're going to do what we feel is the right thing and if, if people you know if we lose opportunities because of that well we're not going to lose our security or our safety or whatnot like they would in china so we right. have the freedom to do that we should do it we're in this situation and then um you know fortunately people are resonating with it you know yeah. like the film's been picked up for theatrical distribution in nine countries we've got you know great broadcast partners and vice is, yeah. is, is acquired the film we've got people who believe in telling the story and yeah. are standing with us to do it and that you know makes it possible for us to do it for one but yeah. but it also is really encouraging you know there's other people who who believe that in that same approach that we got to tell these stories yeah so switching gears a little bit like we've been talking about the film but i'm also curious or we're also curious about like you know what didn't make the cut mm. <laughs> what's on yeah. the editing room floor you know there's 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 so like this gets into it goes all the way back to aristotle you know there's this idea that if you cut something even if you like it but it, it doesn't it's not essential for the story like the story still works without it mm-hmm. then you don't it shouldn't be there it doesn't go. belong right yeah. and that's really painful and i've i've now directed two films i had a uh, a filmmaking partner uh a, like a co-director on my last film and it was really hard for us we would have these scenes where we're like wow these are so powerful right but it's like we know we need to trim content and we're like it can't be this we can't have to cut this <laughs> and so what we did was we created a project file called the love bucket and uh what oh, we would cool. do is we would take a scene you know that we're like okay we're not cutting it we're just moving it in <laughs> the love bucket like this is this is the stuff love we it. love we're totally going to come back and get it right it'll, it'll have a place for it later and it was just enough to console ourselves so that we could move it out of the way and we could work on the things that we needed to. And the love bucket ended up being on that film, a 10 hour project. It was, wow. it was 10 hours long by the end of it. So there's so much stuff that you don't go back to, but it's it's this learning process of, you have to learn not to be precious about things. And it's very interesting because everything, it's not all the, everything that's good. Everything that's good can't make it in there. Um, and I know this is a, like a long answer to a short question, like what got cut, I'll tell you, Little Way had a story that got cut um his, his i loved his story actually it was like one of the things i was most into because there's a whole like little way 
growing in the big way and, and you know this kind of relationship with big truck and all of that and there were scenes where he was you know yeah. running through the cornfields just like big truck is and i just i loved all this stuff but it was redundant and, and what happens yeah. is it's redundant because not because his story is redundant his story on its own is beautiful but the film always has to be about the narrowest you know, set of characters so that people know where their focus lies. Yeah. And it actually, when you remove the other stuff, even if it's beautiful, it actually makes the other stuff shine. And then people know mm -hmm. what they're kind of connecting with and, and where they place their empathy and who the main people are. It just clarifies everything for them. And it makes the story more powerful by subtraction. And it doesn't mean the other stuff you had wasn't great, actually. It's, it's, it's just because it's kind of like, you know, that cliche of, there's a statue in there, you're just uncovering it, right? You're really finding what is it that the story needs and what does the story not need? And sometimes the story doesn't need things that are wonderful, actually. Right. There's also pieces like Dashong's own, own tie-ins with his, with this, with the uh, the TV hijackers. So yeah, there was an award in a in a, an Australian human rights group uh, issued an award for Big Truck. And, uh, you know, Dashong ended up with this thing in New York because it got passed there in the Falun Gong community. People were like, well, I don't know what to do with this. And, <laughs> and Dashong at that time was, he was just, uh, he was still making trips because of his work in the comic space. He hadn't wow. fully left China. And so he decided to bring this award back to the family members of Big Truck and, and go oh. to his hometown. And he ended up having that personal experience of the authorities throwing a bag over his head. So when he draws that in the film, you know, and that's something that Mr. White also endured. This yeah. is like a thing they were doing and they were just, it's really, it's really, it's, and I'm sure it's very disturbing and, and frightening because you can't see things and you're, you're probably being hit and punched and all this kind of stuff. But I think it's also really demeaning. You know yes. what I mean? You're being treated like a, you know, like a beast or something, right? They throw a bag over your head and then, and they take you away. So this is what he went through. He was, uh, you know, interrogated in the aftermath of that. And it was just at first it was like, oh, well, this he's directly bringing a human rights award for Big Truck back to China. I was like, that's got to tie into this film somewhere. But it doesn't because the story isn't isn't it, there's so many things. It's like people often look and say, well, your film should have been about this or it should have been about that. And people can have all kinds of opinions, but you, you really, when you're making a film, you have to look at like, what is the scope of this? What is this beginning, mm -hmm. middle and end of this particular right. story? And there can be all kinds of things that seem related, but if they're not part of that, that growth from that beginning to that end, right, with the people who are involved, then you just, you don't have a place for it. And maybe it's DVD material or like the, mm -hmm. you know, the iTunes, uh, whatever, extras. the extra, yeah, the iTunes cut, extras or those kinds of things. Cut, yeah. Or it goes in the love bucket, you know? So. Yeah. Yeah, I, I mean, you could have like a, you know, eternal spring love cut. Oh. Love cut. Yeah. 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 Or, or like a, you good. know, like a mini series. This, this is the painful thing. It wouldn't be as good actually. And that's the thing. It's yeah. like once, once you have a little bit of distance. So on my last film, it was also a feature length film. It played at uh, Slamdance just before, which is the film, the festival that happens alongside Sundance in Park City. It's kind of oh. like the indie festival that goes along with it. Oh, it's really cool. Fun festival for mostly for first time directors. Um, and so we played there and it was, we went on a festival run for a little bit, but COVID happened and it was mostly zoom calls. So it <laughs> kind of uprooted things. And then we ended up selling the film. Um, we, we had a distributor for digital and then we, we sold it to broadcasters in Europe. And in some cases they were looking for an, a one hour cut, which is a very common like TV format. And so, we, when we were actually editing the film, we struggled mightily to get it down to the length that it was, but it was still feature length. And, you know, when we came back to it a couple months later, it was like, well, now we have to cut it down to below an hour, like 52 minutes or something. This is going to be impossible. And it turned out 
to be a lot easier than I thought. And it was because you had distance, you know, mm, when you're yeah. making a film, it's your everyday thing. You, Every it's moment. like your children. Every yeah. scene is like something you care deeply about. You're working on it all the time. And when you afforded that opportunity of distance, it, it, it allows you to come and look at it as an audience member a little bit. And you're like, okay, well, you know, I don't love to cut all kinds of stuff, but you know, if I had to, I would cut this, 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 and this. And then I was pretty happy with the one hour cut on that. Film, oh, nice. I was like, nice. I like that. Um, I don't feel the same way about cutting eternal spring. It is just got a few different, uh, dimensions to it, but, um, you know, distance does help distance and time allows you to look more objectively at it and just say, yeah, some of these things, some of these, some of the cuts in the, in the last film, I would probably keep, I would trim a couple things out. I think it makes the film stronger. I can't say that for eternal spring though. Does, does your wife, uh, come in the room and it's like, just cut that dude you've been looking at that for do you six know my days. wife did... you know, like, just get just do it man like is she more ruthless or yeah. you're, you're more ruthless yeah she's she's uh i've become i think i've grown in my ability to be detached from things i'm working on mm. because i think when you go through the process a little bit you start to recognize the excitement of letting something go because you you look at it not so much as like losing something but as gaining clarity and gaining strength on something else and sort of crystallizing the the film Mm -hmm. you start to see why you do it right Right, right. so i think that's made it easier but she's someone who's like you know yeah she would cut right away but we would end up with a short film (laughs) yeah 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 (laughs) no really really she was she was great uh i'm teasing there that's generally her like you know i'm the more like holding on to things and she's the one who's easy to part ways with things so that's that's just our personalities (laughs) but she uh her heart was fully in this like every scene of this one too i I think i mentioned that she did all the. i don't know if i did actually she uh you know so we have all the animated scenes um and when you build them you it's a documentary so we're still using the voiceover um audio to to like guide the story through each scene uh from the interviews with the with the real life people but there was this like, well, it's animated. We need to f- make it feel alive, right? So we did. Yep. We worked with um, Brett Killer and his, was supervising our sound work, and you know, brought in a great team of people who are doing foley and sound effects and all this type of stuff, and finding you know the right sirens for for China and all this for the police cars and everything. And so we we had this soundscape, but you know, people need to speak as well. And so Masha, who's from Changchun, she managed to find Chinese people with all like Dongdae Northeast accents wow. in, That's cool. in Toronto. And so she was casting people so that the cops, even though we don't like subtitle oh, these things, you know, yeah. a cop is chasing some guy and he's yeah. angry. So what is he saying? Right. Yeah. And so all of these things were, you know, she, she wrote the script for it. She cast oh. it, she voice directed it. Right. So her, her stamp is all over it, not just in all the producing capacity. And she's a, She's a lawyer as well, so she does all of our business wow. affairs and oh, HR wow. and all this stuff. So she's kind of everywhere with this Multifaceted. Wow. Yeah. Cool. No, that's that's amazing because my, my parents are from the Northeast region, so I'm very familiar with that accent. So, and like yeah. for other films, if it's like, if it's not the right accent, it really breaks you out of the, like the, the experience. Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah, yeah. We've all seen those like Western movies where they get Chinese actors and it's like, what? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That person's not from there. Uh, oh, my gosh. Jason, thank you so much. You spent so much time with us. Yeah. We we don't want to take up too much of your time, but mm-hmm. we would love to end just to kind of for you to share what's next. Like what's next for Eternal Spring? What's next for you? I know we were kind of talking about how like you've, you've mentioned it in this hour that you spent with us. You do like video games. You do like feature films. You do kind of like a little bit of everything. So what's what's kind of next? How do you pick what you're going to do next? Um, yeah, I have some attention deficit problems, um, so it's it, kind of all over the place. 
but I got a team of people who, who share my, uh, you know, share that same inclination. So, mm. you know, it's, I find working across different mediums really, really helpful. Actually, it's not necessarily why I do it, but in hindsight, I, I see that, you know, we, I just like to tell us we're, we're storytellers. That's the thing that's consistent, regardless of which medium we're using, we're telling a story. And in some cases it's through animation, it's through documentary. We do some docu-series. Um, we had the Confucius was a foodie series, which last year was named best food series on, on television at the taste awards, which mm -hmm. is airing on a bunch of plug. It's <laughs> still airing on PBS stations in some locations. So you can look it up if you're interested in, in food cuisine and culture. Um, so we work across these different things and we do VR and games and narrative games mainly, but in every space we're, we're looking for, for stories, right. And we're trying to tell a story and, and we just find it's like a different medium that we can play with to tell that. And I find that, you know, for example, with virtual reality, it's really weak in terms of telling like a linear story, because as a director, you don't control the shot anymore. If I want to communicate certain emotion, I might have a close-up shot. But if you do that in VR, it's just like some person awkwardly <laughs> staring at, in your face Awkward. and it just doesn't, it just doesn't feel right. No, right. And, like, and also <laughs> you don't have another character that you're empathizing with. It's, it's all first person experience. You are the character. So it, it's not so useful for linear narrative, but I feel it is very powerful for creating empathy and for putting yourself into someone else's shoes and like experiencing mm. what someone else has gone through. You can't, you can't compare. So we're doing a, a number of projects in VR. We have a, we have like a spoken word experience where you can travel to different cultures and times and experience different spoken word traditions wow. called oh, Versus so VR cool. that we're working on. I am doing a human rights related. There's like a spinoff from Eternal Spring where we take mm. some of Mr. White's story that doesn't exist in the film and you experience it through the first person of like his whole journey of what he went through, wow. you know, being separated from his wife and all of this and interrogated. And this, it's a, it's a bit of an intense experience, but it really, I think, can allow people to walk a mile in the shoes of one of these individuals and bring them closer to it. So we're doing that in a VR space. Um, we're doing a narrative uh, video game. Our next one is called Sky of Tides. It's a sci-fi adventure uh, game. And we have a short form animated series that goes with it. And, you know, I'm sure I will return at some point, very likely to doing another feature doc, but I'm kind of like, uh, I'm, I'm kind of picky about it. You know, I don't like right. to just do stuff, right? Mm -hmm. I like to like do something that I really feel is like, one that I care about, I feel like I'm adding something to a conversation, something that people haven't discussed or, or you know, thought of so far. And, and also ideally a new way of telling a story, like finding a unique, so you can also play with the art form and find some new things. And, right. and so, you know, we're, that's where we're at is like, we're, we're looking at other stories, looking at other ways to tell things. And in the meantime, we're doing a bunch of work across different mediums at the same time. It was interesting, actually, you know, when we made the film, I had a number of people respond and say, um, it was really interesting how you had that video, video game aesthetic to the film. Yeah. And I was like, really? Cause I never, I, I never had this conscious effort and we were talking about it in our team it was like, well, what were they referring to? And I was like, okay, maybe some of the camera movement through the space mm -hmm. feels like a bit of an open world type thing. Mm. But I think it was also, you know, we had this issue when we we're communicating to a Western audience, we have a number of Chinese film subjects or characters, right? And, you know, people have trouble keeping track of who's who and, and you know, and what their names are and yep. stuff. So we right. developed this kind of, you know, uh, intro video character. Of, yeah. Yeah. yeah, we would just show a little headshot, this yep. kind of icon of someone and their name there. And it popped up while there yep. was a translation, the subtitles going on. It's like, OK, well, that kind of feels like a, a speech bubble or something you might see in an yep. RPG yep. game yeah, or like, a sure. you know, visual novel or something. And so it's like that's probably there just subconsciously, because when we work in this space, it's like you just do that. And then you don't say in your mind, 
this goes in the bucket of video game stuff never to be touched in any other medium. You don't do that. You just have all these solutions in your head, right? right. Because every time you work on something, you're exposed to something, you just, you have new ideas. And so I think that's really helpful. So if people who are in, you know, in the creative space and they have the opportunity to say, well, I really want to be a filmmaker, but now I'm making games or now I'm making, you know, animation or docs or something else. It's like, no, like, like enjoy it. Soak up mm -hmm. as much as you can, because I feel like every medium you're going to take lessons that other people in your field won't necessarily have with them if they don't have that experience. So that's that's my retroactive justification for why I really can't keep my focus on one thing and I'm doing everything at the same time. Well, thank That's you awesome. so much for sharing with us. And how and can people still see Eternal Spring today? And how long is it going to be in theaters for? Uh, it's it's eight sixteen right now, so I'm not sure if they can see it today. It depends <laughs> on the show times in your in your uh, in your city. No, but. Uh, to what you're really asking me is yes, it's still in theaters. Uh, we're in film form now, uh, opening for a fourth week starting on uh, Friday. Uh, if you're in London, England, we're in the Bertha Doc House, so our third week there, we've been extended as well. Um, look for us in LA. We're playing at the Lamley Royal in Santa Monica um, starting November 18th. We're mm actually you know what if i start listing it i'm gonna lose a bunch you just go to eternalspringfilm.com yeah, we're gonna say we're, we're gonna put all the info <laughs> yes, there Eternal Springs yeah. all right yeah we'll yeah and really this one this one we made for the big screen uh, as soon as we started working on this early on just seeing dash Rome's art and what our team could do kind of bringing it to life we're like nah we got to go big and yep. we were concerned when covid happened and all the theaters mm -hmm. were closed but fortunately it took us so long that they they opened back up but we really yeah. we really hope people can see it on the big screen yeah it almost sounded sure. like tom cruise there and like top gun maverick and be like, oh, you know what? People really got to see this movie at the That's theater. That's right. Bringing so. people back to yep. the theater. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, we, we wish for a little bit of that. A little oh bit of that would be nice. Yeah. Well, yeah. Well, guys, check it out. It is all yeah. you. All the accolades that have come. It's so well deserving. Mm -hmm. It is an incredible piece of art and storytelling. We are so glad to have talked yeah. to you about it. We wish we could be a part of the Academy to vote on it, but unfortunately, that it's in the hands of the Academy. So you know, we'll just do our uh, job of yeah. like trying to bring just make eyeballs sure you got your movie. speech ready. You know, when you <laughs> go up on stage and we're watching, you know, in America, the Oscars and rooting for you guys. You know, yeah, huge congrats! Thank you so much. Huge congrats. Yeah. Well, that's real all. pleasure. Yeah, thanks everyone for listening. Check out the film. We will list all of the information in our description of the episode below. Thank you again to Jason. And that's all we have for tonight. Bye. Bye. Thanks for coming on. Bye. Rolling. Rolling. Okay, so now this is just our. Uh, we need a is it is it good? Is it good? Y yeah. Well, guys, thank you so much for listening to that. Um, that was an incredible experience for us to have uh, Jason on to talk about it. And I loved, we love to just give you guys a little bit more and tell you how you can go see it and our reactions for it. Yeah, and as you guys may have noticed, this episode is slightly different from what we mm. normally do. But, you know, we're not just goofballs. We're <laughs> serious goofballs sometimes. So. I like that. Serious goofballs. <laughs> yeah. Um, I mean, sometimes we talk about light stuff, right? But So this is a lot slightly different. But personally, I found that conversation really enlightening. Yeah. And you went to see it twice. 
I did. Yeah, I, I mean, did. And the first time, it was like a shock to me, right? So yeah. I probably I may have missed some things, but then yeah. on the second time, um, my second visit, I was like, oh yeah, like so I could, I think I could absorb the movie better. Yeah, and it's it, you know, we didn't have, we didn't want to take up too much time, but we could have went on for like another oh hour. Oh my god, <laughs> I, was, I think we could have um, talked to Jason for like four hours. Yeah, there's so I yeah. mean, just like I was saying, just to see. Uh, I mean, I really loved Dashung's art. If you guys are comic book fans, I mean, I remember seeing him at Comic-Con like 10 years ago, mm. you know, standing at a booth and he's doing like, f- you know, art for fans. And yeah. uh, and then in, like 10 years later, oh, wait a minute. He's he's animating his this feature film about his own experience. About wild. Like getting, a you know, going through life-threatening, actual life-threatening situations. Yeah. And living to tell about it and telling about other people's stories. So that was a little surreal for me. Mm. Like, yeah. whoa, you know, to see that. Um, Honestly, for us who live in a free country, yeah. right? This These kind of Seemingly things are free so... Country. <laughs> it's unimaginable. Yeah. Right? It's, it's not something you, like, walk a mile in somebody else's shoes. It's just not possible. Yeah. It's, mm-hmm. But I think at the very least, like... I know Mia already pointed it out, but the first, I saw the film twice too, and the first time, I truly did just emotionally (laughs) connect with it every single time, because it is so, there's a lot of hard-hitting traumatic scenes, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I loved how we talked about the animation so much in the the episode, because it is, you, you, a lot of the people aren't there, you can't, we, we are not at the labor camp we're not gonna go there right um but they draw it's so it's so immersive i think mia described it really well it's very very immersive and then the second time when i when i went with a friend um it was this then i really got to experience and appreciate even more just the storytelling aspects mm-hmm. really like he jason said it like perfect it was like there's a there's a heist here and it's yeah. a really good story to tell there are clear characters that are the leads there are supporting characters and it was and then one of my favorite parts about the film was that you're right it's focused on this community right right this one community but you get to see so many different perspectives and reactions dashong was is one of them right that people reacted differently to a decision a call that was made and i think that that's so important to see in a group of people cuz like people will react differently and that's okay mm-hmm. yeah. and that's really beautiful to see how that unfolds and how we get to see all those different reactions. Right. Even though they're like the same group in the same group, same community, their thoughts thoughts are not homogenous. No, not at all. It's also interesting to see his journey throughout the, the, the whole entire process, right. Of like, trying to learn about these people's stories mm. and then try to see where they're coming from mm-hmm, mm-hmm, and come mm-hmm. to appreciate it even though maybe i don't know maybe he 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 still doesn't agree with the approach or maybe he wouldn't have made the same call yeah but he it really was great for he was just there to understand yeah he was like it was great yeah was i great mean at the end that. of that movie when Quan and i watched it for the first time my comment was like Wow, what eyeliner did you have on in your eyes? Because pristine. no smudging, no smudging whatsoever. Makeup was perfect. It was crazy. perfect. <laughs> I was blown the, away. The, the crazy meta thing is, and Jason touched on it a little bit, is like, okay, even right now, first of all, yeah. the persecution is still going on right now in Today. China. Yep. Uh, and at the same time, they are seeing, like he mentioned when we did the pre-interview call, that you know people would be like would rescind 
they would be like, hey, we chose your film for, oh, wait, just kidding. We cannot show this. Mm. Mm. So yeah. it's like he's going, uh, there are these parallel tracks where he's experiencing that right now mm. for making this movie. And he's putting himself, he's saying like he feels safe. He People aren't going to come to his house and like ransack his house. But professionally, you're definitely putting, yeah. you're, you could be losing out on profits yeah. uh-huh. for doing this, yeah. you know? Yeah. And that's real. And yep. he's putting himself out there. Um, it's crazy because I can imagine this should be on every major streaming platform, but I guarantee you the major ones that have that are basically owned by the CCP. The ones that still want to make money. In the China. ones that still, because so, all the, yeah. all the streaming. Interests. Yeah, because all the streaming platforms, they have overarching companies. Like, I'm not going to mention them, but, uh, well, who cares? Like WB, <laughs> like Warner Brothers or whatever. Like Hulu, all these platforms are owned by a larger Disney or whatever. And if they want to, you know, show a movie in China, like they they can't carry this. So it'd be very... And he he mentioned that Vice picked it up, which is great. Yeah. Amazing. So I'm I'm curious because Vice has had some good pieces yeah, recently. Like, like how many yeah. platforms are we going to see this on? Because right. I guarantee you, this should be on every single major platform. But you're not going to see it because somebody at Hulu or Netflix is like, Peacock, we can't carry this. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Because of reasons. Because <laughs> the Chinese CCP called us up and was like, guys, you can't carry this. Dude, that's crazy. But at the same time, right, yeah. the accolades that they are getting, the film yeah. festivals that they are getting responses to, um, yeah. and Jason, in our, when we had our pre-call with him, it's obviously particularly tough in like the Asian community, like yeah. that, like directly call that out. But he also did mention like there was like a Tibetan like film festival that was like really excited about it, and um, he also mentioned that there are people in, in China, China who wanna, want yeah. to screen that. Yeah. And yeah. he's like, and he's, he's like, like uh, you guys I don't want to put you in danger. Uh, I'm not responsible for your safety. Yeah, Yeah. I mean, but that's Um, incredible, though. It is. It's it's incredible. incredible. It's incredible. So yeah, we are gonna link all the information about the film. The film. The website is Mm eternalspringfilms.com. We'll put it all in the info so you guys can click and check it out and make sure to go to your city and see it. It might not be there for too long, but to see it, like you guys are saying, on the big screen how it should be shown is quite incredible. So catch it. I agree. All right. right. Well, thanks for listening, guys. Thanks so much for listening. Go check it out. Bye. Bye. Bye.